You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. preaching uh, the past few times through the book of Philippians, um, and so I'm going to be continuing that, and we're moving on to the second chapter, but just as a quick recap of where we've been, um, if you haven't heard those talks, you can find them on our podcast, um, but uh, this is a letter from Paul to the church in Philippi, um, this is a church that was planted uh, in a very patriotic Roman city, a uh, Roman colony, and so it's very uh, strongly, uh, uh, heavily induced into this Roman culture. Um, and, and that church um, was planted in the midst of Paul's persecution, and as a continuation of that, that church has continued to be persecuted in that, in that culture. Um, so uh, Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians when he was in prison, um, and or under house arrest, um, and the Philippian church had heard about this, and they sent this guy called Epaphroditus to him to give him a gift and to, to see how he was going and support him while with his ministry. Um, and so Paul has kind of had an update from how the Philippian church is going, and he's written this letter, and Epaphroditus has taken it back. So, um, in in my my first kind of. A uh, sermon on this, I talked about how Paul was encouraging uh, uh, that um, he was kind of driving towards this idea that all Christians are called to joyfully partner uh, in the gospel as they are conformed to the image of Christ for the glory of God. Um, and that was kind of where I felt that, that Paul was kind of kicking things off with. But he, he followed that up by addressing the concerns of the Philippian church because of their persecution um, and talked... Uh, encourage them not to look actually at their own circumstances and their suffering, but instead actually um, in the midst of that, um, like it's very easy to question whether God is with them, but to look instead to the Jesus on the cross as the greatest uh, example and statement of God's love for them. Um, and he reminds them that as Christians we, we have this win-win scenario in front of us. To live is, to, uh, is Christ and to die is gain. So after that, we're continuing on into chapter 2. I'll read through the passage and then we'll start to unpack it a little bit. So um, this is Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 18. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by thinking the same way, having the same love, sharing the same feelings, focusing on the one God. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but, in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look, not, uh, look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, 
He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord for the glory of God the Father. So then, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you, enabling you both to desire and to work out his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling and arguing, so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God, who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in a world. Hold firmly to the message of life. Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labour for nothing. But even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Um, so this, this passage uh, is, is kind of a bit like a, a tightly woven tapestry. It's centred around this poem of Jesus, which is maybe some form of early form creed or something like that. Um, and around it, uh, that, that, that central poem has such beauty and depth and richness in it, um, and you, know, you could preach for many weeks just unpacking that. Um, but uh, outside of that are some other paragraphs, and Paul is using uh, that central piece of focusing on Jesus to um, talk and guide the Philippian church toward a place of unity. Um, so there's a, actually been some division in the Philippian church as we read through the letter uh, into towards the end. We actually hear about some arguments within members of the church, which Paul addresses more specifically later. Um, but what he's doing here is he's actually encouraging people to turn and look towards Jesus and gain a better perspective from there. Um, and so while this is a very intricate piece, um, uh, instead of looking at each thing, uh, you know, three weeks on each kind of line, um, I, I want to step back and have a look at the whole thing and, and take in yeah, that whole tapestry as a whole. Um, so back when I was younger, growing up, and some of you guys might be able to relate to this story, um, I would uh, you know, get dressed for the day and, and go about my business as a young child. And um, if the weather was a bit cold outside and we were heading outside, my dad would always tell me, you know, if it's raining, wear a raincoat. Um, and this would always get on my nerves and bug me because I'm like, Dad, it's all right, I can look after myself, I know how to, to dress appropriately. Um, but because he told me I usually actually not wear a raincoat just to kind of like, you know, spite him a little bit. Um, but then later on I'd let him put something on because it was wet. Um, and what Paul is doing here is, is something a little bit similar. He uh, has a number of if statements that are really um, kind of rhetorical statements. He has kind of this, if this, then do this. But that if isn't so much of an if, it's a kind of because or since. Um, so let's have a look at verse 1. It says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, 
if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy. Um, so, so Paul is presenting here a series of questions that they're kind of like qualifying statements to see if what follows applies to us. Um, so that first thing, if, if there's any encouragement in Christ, he's asking, if we look at Christ, are we encouraged? Do we find encouragement there? Um, I think if we fully reckon with and understand that the weight of what Christ has done, there should be. Um, in my last sermon, I kind of unpacked how Paul uh, was encouraging the Philippians to look at Christ in the midst of their suffering um, and to gain comfort from God joining himself to the suffering of humanity through Jesus as this ultimate uh, example. Um, the, the next thing is if there's any consolation of love. Um, as we kind of come to, come to God and we understand the weight of our own sin, uh, we, uh, we need to also console ourselves with the fact that he loves us. Um, as the famous passage in John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Do we, do we reckon with that and do we understand that? Um, do we understand our fellowship with the Spirit and by that uh, extension of that to all believers? Uh, in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13 it says, for we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. So what, what flows through us is the spirit of God when we call him our saviour. And that same spirit is what flows through those around us, our fellow Christians. And do we understand the affection and mercy that God has demonstrated towards us through Jesus' death on the cross? Um, Ephesians 2, 4-5 says, uh, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love, made us alive with the Messiah, even though we were dead in our trespasses. So, in the midst of our own rebellion against God, God redeemed us because he had mercy on us. He didn't wait for us to do the right thing, but he had mercy in the midst of our brokenness. And so those four if statements are kind of this qualifying collective statement um, to, those, to, the, to, the, to the points that follow of if we understand this and we believe this, then we should do this. Um, and so if these don't apply to you, if you don't connect with those points, I think that's a starting point before we go through the rest of this. But... In verse 2 it continues and, and Paul says, um, if you believe these things, if you understand these things, verse 2, fulfill my joy by thinking the same way, having the same love, sharing the same feelings, focusing on the one goal. So Paul here is driving towards this idea of unity, coming together. And, and why is this important? important? What, what is Paul addressing here? Um, so I mentioned earlier that Paul is talking later to two women, uh, Euodia and Syntyche. That's a great name that is quite hard to pronounce. Um, and he, he tells them to agree in the Lord, to come together. Um, so Paul's obviously heard of this argument, probably through um, Epaphras, 
who came and came to him, um, and he uh, has called the Philippian church to come together with unity and to focus um, <coughs> by fixing their eyes towards the same end point they're actually able to highlight their similarities rather than their differences and they can have a more unified journey. Um, it's not that Paul is calling them to agree on all things, I don't think it's that naive, but there is uh, a like-mindedness that can be highlighted rather than a differences. Um, there's a difference between unity and uniformity and Paul is calling for unity, not necessarily uniformity. Paul continues from this point in verse 3 and says, Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. I find this kind of interesting because in the last chapter, Paul actually talks about how he didn't mind that people were sharing the gospel out of rivalry and pride, um, but he was happy that as long as the good news was preached. Um, Yet there's a distinction to be made here, though. Um, in, the, in the former context where he's talking about people sharing the gospel, while he would have preferred for them to be motivated through uh, love, he realised that he doesn't actually have the ability to talk into their space and change their motives. And so he sees that the greater necessity is that Jesus and the good news of Jesus is shared with people. Um, whereas in this context, he has the opportunity to speak into their lives and he can see that these motivations of rivalry and conceit are actually what is going to bring division and hurt within the church. Because of this, Paul is imploring the whole community to do nothing from a motive of rivalry or conceit. Um, Paul knows that um, while people look on the surface at how people appear, that God actually looks at the heart. And what is it about rivalry and conceit specifically? So, so rivalry is this idea that, you know, I want to be better than you. I see you and I want to get a step above you. And conceit is this excessive pride in yourself. Um, and both of these are all focused inward um, about puffing yourself, yourself up over others. These attitudes are... Uh, they're, they're so destructive and they become a breeding ground for sin. Um, if you think about uh, the different ways in which the desire to be first has resulted in the pain of others all throughout history, um, this is what so much of sin comes from, is this kind of base underlying thought that I'm better than you and therefore I deserve this good thing and you deserve whatever's left. Um, and it's important in the midst of this, like this is often not a common conscious thought, but it's important to ask ourselves, are we competing for other people's attention and approval? Are we, are we doing things seeking to make ourselves look better, seeking to put others down? And um, in a, especially in Australian culture where we have this uh, daisy-cutting culture of pulling other people down to our level. That's a common thing. And so what, what is the antidote to this? How can we remedy this? 
Paul says we need to humbly consider others as more important than ourselves. What does this look like in a practical sense? Okay, so verse 4, it says, everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So Paul is uh, asking the, the Philippians to look out for others. When we consider ourselves as more important than others, we also we, we set ourselves up to ignore the interests of others. You know, so, so much of our lives and the decisions we make on a day-to-day basis have impact on others. And yet we typically decide to do things that are best for ourselves instead of for others. Think about just your daily commute to work and how you cut across that person to get the better shot uh, for the lights. Most of us easily look to ourselves above, above, above others, but it's also important to note that Paul is not saying that we need to fully neglect ourselves. Paul says, not only your own interest. So there's an assumption that you're looking after yourself in the first place. Um, we can't fully neglect ourselves because we are made in the image of God just like everyone else. And so we're called to care for ourselves just as we are for others. Uh, if you look at the population in general, this is probably more of an issue for women typically than guys. Guys are a bit too single-minded and oblivious to the world around us, um, whereas women typically uh, are more uh, attuned to how others are feeling and seek to go out of their way and look after them. And if we look at Jesus, he... He exemplifies that self-care is important. After times of intense ministry, he would often retreat and have times of prayer and rest. And we too need to care for ourselves. Um, Because if we don't, eventually somebody else is going to have to care for us. So it's important that we have at least a baseline of care for ourselves. However, for the vast majority of us, once we have this down pat, The issue is not about self-care, it's actually about looking beyond ourselves. It's important in the midst of this to consider how we understand the term humility. Um, Many people would say that humility is to think less of yourself, but in reality it's thinking of yourself less. So that, this, is, this is how in uh, Numbers 12.3 it's possible for um, Moses who wrote Numbers to say Moses was a very humble man, more so than any man on the face of the earth. Typically we would hear that and say well that's completely the opposite of humility. But if we consider humility to be thinking less of ourselves then yes that makes sense. But really, humility is thinking of yourself less, of thinking others before yourself. He spent, Moses spent all of his life dedicated to the tribe of Israel and helping them commune with God. He thought, thought very little for himself and so much more about others. Now, when we look at ourselves, we can see that often, you know, we do have the uh, capacity to look after others. You know, we look at our friends and our family, um, our work colleagues and so on. Um, But in the midst of that, we always define those circles of where we're caring for others in a way that best suits us at the time. You know, when you're at footy, your team and the people who you're interested, you're looking out for are the people on your team 
not Collingwood. (laughs) Whereas when you go down the street and you're by yourself and you're going to the shops, it's all about you and your interest because nobody else is in your circle and you want to get to the front of that queue first so you can get out of there and get home. Yet how does Christ define that other person? You know, we look at the parable of the Good Samaritan that uh, those who are outside of our tribe, our collective, our space, even those who are our enemies, those are the people that Christ defines as our as the other. John Stott says that at every stage of our Christian develop, development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. So rather than looking around us for one particular person, of, you know, our mum or our auntie who's always looking out for others, Paul instead calls us to look towards Jesus as the example. Verse 5, he says, Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus. And Paul says to make your attitude. Um, Paul believes that there is an action on our part to do this. Um, that it isn't just God waving a magic wand over us and changing us, that there are things we can do to contribute and change to how we behave and act and think. And yet at the same time, God works with us in that. Uh, you know, as Westerners, we often struggle with this concept that God and us work at the same time. Um, you know, if God is doing something, then I've got nothing to do with it. It's God's miracle, and if I do something, then God can't be in it. Um, The only problem with that is the Bible, um, which typically just tears that to shreds. So many of the stories talk about how God says, I will do this, and then he sends a person. Is that God, or is that the person doing it? Well, yes, is really the short answer. You know, Think back to Ian's sermon just the other week where he was talking about how to listen to a sermon. All these attitudes that we can, and things we can do to hear well so we can respond well and we can be good soil. It's not that we're just one soil or the other. At different times we could be different soil. And we need to be active in making sure that we are fertile and ready for that seed. So Christ is this template that we should be striving for. You know, in some circumstances, um, we look at Jesus and we say, that's too lofty a goal, that's too hard to attain, that's too kind of undefined. Um, And so in that context, we may provide another example, like Paul or, or somebody else within the church community who is an example of living humbly. But those people we point to should also be striving to be like Jesus so we can emulate their striving to be like Jesus. So how was it that Christ's attitude was so good and so different from others that he should be our blueprint? Verse 6 to 8 starts off this poem. It says, Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, 
he humbled himself by coming, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, there's some dense theology in this, um, and there's so much you could pull apart, and uh, I want to just quickly touch on a few things, um, particularly some grounding points around Christ's um, divinity and his humanity. Uh, so it says, Jesus who existing in the form of God. You know, this is pointing to the fact that Jesus always was God. He, he didn't um, just resemble God, but he actually is God. Um, because of this, he's not a created being. He is the creator. If we look back at um, John chapter 1, it says, the word was with God and the word was God. And it's through that word that everything was created. Nothing has been created that has not been created through him. Now, this is a big difference between uh, Christianity and cults and other religions, is that we hold these things together, that he is both fully uh, God and fully man. He's taken on the likeness of man. It doesn't mean he merely became like a human being. Rather, he who has always been God became what he was not, a human being. He, Christ, he veiled his deity, he veiled his divinity, but he didn't void it, he didn't get rid of it. He added uh, humanity, but he didn't surrender his godlikeness. And, and in the midst of this, um, he gives up this, this position, this, uh, um, he gives up something, he emptied himself, it says. Um, now, of what did he empty himself? So, if we, if we look at Jesus and God, this, this Trinity, this is kind of one part of the Trinity concept, um, Jesus was personally equal to God, and he was also positionally equal to God. And then he gave up the position but he kept the personal equality with God. So, if you think of that in the terms of that positional, what are, what are the, the perks of the, the position? Um, the comforts and the joys of heaven, he gave those up when he put on his humanity. Um, 1 Corinthians 8 9 says, um, Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Christ gave up his rich mode of existence to become poor. Yet in the midst of this, his nature didn't change. Just like a rich man who loses his wealth or gives it all away, doesn't change, he changes his existence and how he lives, but he doesn't actually change the fact that he's a man. And yet what Paul is doing here is he's using this poem, this, this dense theology... And he's using it to convey to the Philippians what it is to live humbly. So just reading that again. Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men, and when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
So some translations, that first sentence, you know, um, consider equality as something to be used to his own advantage. Some translations turn that into, um, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Um, it kind of creates this visual image of something, somebody reaching out to take something, um, which, uh, in Jesus' case, he actually has all rights to hold on to that. Um, and yet Jesus is refraining from taking that. He's refraining from using that positional equality with God to his own advantage. Now, this, this idea of reaching out to take something, does that kind of ring any bells for you of different stories in the Bible? Uh, it kind of goes all the way right back to the start, back to, back to the first couple of pages of the Bible. This idea of Adam reaching out to grab something, to define things by his own uh, perspective. He sought to become like God and through that become a power to himself. He, uh, uh, he, he's, he's seeking to define his own right and wrong. And so what's Paul doing here in this poem? He's setting up Jesus to contrast against Adam. Adam who rebelled against God but who's also a symbol of humanity, including us. It's very easy to say, oh yeah, that was Adam, but you know, we are all reflective of Adam. We all reach out to take that. We all, we all seek to put ourselves as number one. We act out of pride and rivalry, um, and we look to put God below us, God to the side. Now, if we just look at some of the differences between Adam and uh, Jesus. So Adam was made in God's image and Jesus was and is the very essence of God. Adam wanted to be like God and yet Jesus took on the likeness of man. Adam wanted to exalt himself and yet Jesus emptied himself. Adam was discontent on being, uh, being God's servant. Uh, servant. And yet Jesus directly assumed the form of a slave. Adam rejected God's work in sinful disobedience. And yet Jesus humbly submitted to God's work in perfect obedience. Adam succumbed to temptation and yet Jesus overcame temptation and crushed the tempter. Adam brought the curse on this world and Jesus took the punishment of that curse upon him. Adam was condemned and disgraced, and Jesus was exalted by the Father. I'd like to kind of hone in a little bit on Christ's temptation before he started his ministry. Um, because when we read through this, we actually see that what Satan is trying to do is attack and tempt Jesus with that positional equality with God. Um, so I'll just read through the passage, which is um, Matthew 4, 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, as you would expect. Uh, then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city. He had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, 
If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, you will give his angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus told him, It is also written, Do not test the Lord your God. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Go away, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and immediately angels came and began to serve him. So what Satan is doing here, he's calling into question if Jesus really is the Son of God. You know, Jesus, are you really who you think you are? You know, if you're really the Son of God, you know, make this into bread. Prove it to me to me and to yourself, you know. Plus you get a good feed, you are hungry. You know, if you are who you say you are, then make this big spectacle by jumping off the top of the temple and having angels catch you. That'll be a good start to your ministry. That'll get everybody talking. If you are who you are, who you say you are, then you're here to save this world. You're here to rescue this world. Well, rather than going through all that pain and suffering, why don't you just worship me and I'll give it to you easily. You don't have to go. There's, a, there's an easy way out. Jesus present, uh, Satan presents Jesus with multiple opportunities to prove who he is, to take that easy way out. And yet Christ doesn't rise to that bait. He doesn't have something to prove, prove here. For because he's emptied himself of his own desire to have things his own way, he's become a slave. He's set aside his own will so that he can be obedient to the Father. And just how obedient was Christ in, this hum- in his humility? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Jesus obeyed God for the whole duration of his life, and he didn't let his own self-preservation get in the way of his obedience. You know, he didn't want to die. Um, Mark, Mark 14, 32-36 is Jesus' prayer before in the garden, before his crucifixion. He knew what was coming. Uh, let me read that out to you. Uh, verse 32. Then they came to a place named Gethsemane, and he told his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to uh, be deeply distressed and horrified. Then he said to them, My soul is swallowed up in sorrow to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. Then he went a little farther, fell to the ground, and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. He makes his will, his desire for this not to be the way, known to the Father, but in the midst of that, he still says, not what I will, but what you will. He lets go of his desire to have things go his way. He puts himself not at number one, 
but right at the bottom. And Jesus is obedient even in the midst of being falsely accused when he's tried and sentenced to death. You know, it's one thing to be obedient if you know you're in the right and and things are going to go your way, but but Christ is obedient even when he's done no wrong and it still means a negative outcome for him. And, and this is death in the form of execution. Um, you know, this is a shameful form of death. You know, typically reserved for murderers and thieves. It's not in the glorious death of battle. It's not in the peaceful death of old age. And it's not even like a tragic accident or sickness that hits him young. This is a deliberate death and murder that is full of shame. Christ is the greatest example of someone considering others more important than yourself. Because he put your interests above his own. He was willing to die that we might live. Now where would we be if Jesus looked to his own interests above others? If he'd taken the easy way out that Satan had offered? If he looked for his own self-preservation instead of our redemption? And so we see this is what Jesus do, did and now in the poem, we pivot and we look at how God responds. In verse 9 it says, For this reason God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this section is contrasting the actions of Jesus with the actions of God. Christ humbled himself and God exalted him. Christ didn't seek a name for himself and then God gives him the name above all names. Christ bent his knee in service to those around him and then God decrees that every knee will bow to him. You can, you can almost see this as, as a bit of a U or a, a dip. You know, Christ um, lets go of his uh, personal equality, with his positional equality with God and becomes and takes on the form of a man. And then he follows that through in obedience to the point of death right at the bottom. And at that point, God then exalts him and gives him his name above all names. And there's this fulfillment when Christ comes again that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And who's going to bow down to him? Those who are in heaven, those who are on earth, and those who are under the earth. Those who are in heaven, all those spiritual beings, the demonic and the angelic. Those who are on earth, us, us who are alive when he comes again. And those who are under the earth, Anybody who's died, they will be resurrected. It is pointing to this idea of resurrection that is to come. All beings will eventually come to recognise that Christ is the greatest. uh, And they will recognise him for what he has done. And I suppose the question is, of that qualifying first four questions that uh, Paul asks, if that's not you, if you don't agree with those things, or they don't resonate with you, 
you would, they eventually will. You will eventually come to see God for who he is. And so I suppose the question is, will you recognise him now? Will you look to Christ and acknowledge that he is the only one to have lived the life that Paul is calling us to? And so then Paul closes out this poem with the following kind of reflection. He says in verse 12, So then, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you, enabling you both to desire and to work out his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling and arguing, so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world. Hold firmly to the message of life, and then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labour for nothing. But even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you, in the same way you guys should rejoice and also be glad with me. So here, what Paul does is, in those first couple of verses, 12 and 13, is he commends the Philippians for what they've done. He he recognises that they are working at this. And then he commands them to continue to do it. He says, you know, while I'm not there, continue to work out your uh, your salvation with fear and trembling. And then in verse 13, he comforts them. He says... um, It is God working in you, enabling you both to desire this and to work it out. That he's able to point them to God working through them. When we look towards Christ and we see his humility, we see the greatest example of putting the interests of others before our own. He who had it all but gave it up to become the servant of all. He always looked out for the interests of others before his own, even to the point of his own death and crucifixion. And so the challenge is for us that if we look at Christ and we're encouraged by his sacrificial love for us, are we then moved to act that out in in a reflective action by living humbly? Are we willing to look not only at our own desires and the things that make us right? Because when we look at history, it shows us time and time again that when we put ourselves on top, it leads to the infliction of pain on others. Instead, we need to look at the unifying work of Jesus within us. God is working in us to desire to do good, to desire to live humbly. And he's also working in us not only to desire, but to actually put it into action. Paul says, you know, um, that we may be like stars in the sky that shine to the light, the darkness of this world. How bright is a star that shines when there is no other light. And so I suppose the question is, if it's raining, wear a raincoat. If Jesus came and humbly died for you, then emulate him by living humbly also.
if this is true for you, then act it out. If it's not true for you, well then I suppose that's the question then. If this is not true for you, are you willing to come and recognise what Christ has done? Are you willing to see how he has come and taken your place? And then when you see that, are you then willing to emulate that? Are you willing to live out this also? I think we'll close the area of prayer. So. Lord, um, thank you so much for your amazing sacrifice. Your The way in which you give so much of yourself that you would give up all the comforts of heaven all the riches and joys of life in heaven to come and clothe yourself in humanity and live with us in the midst of our own pain and suffering. And that in the midst of that, you wouldn't seek to make yourself, put yourself up on a pedestal over others to lord it over them that you're doing it better, but you, you would actually seek to love others to the point of your own death, that you would seek to love and honour God and love and honour people and that in the midst of that, even though it meant your own death, you continued on that path. And God, thank you so much that in the midst of that, that that terrible moment of death uh, for Jesus that actually spelled life for the rest of us. We just pray that we would fully reckon with and understand the weight of that and that from that place we might be able to step forward humbly, putting aside our own desires and our own interests to be right in arguments, to be the, the one at the front of the line and that we would be able to submit ourselves into obedience for you that we might look out for the interests of others. pray this in your name, Jesus. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.